Have you ever heard the statement, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called? Me too. And I think it's a dangerous statement. Why? Well, today we're going to look at this and three other insights from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 10 through 27, as we continue our study in this beloved disciples book. How do you define a successful life? If your answer can be summarized as earthly excellence and sacred significance, you're at the right place. Join host Stephanie Smith as she shares three keys unlocking a life of lasting purpose. Learn yourself, love God, and live connected. You'll become smarter about yourself, skilled in human dynamics, savvy about the Christian faith, and strengthened to pass this wisdom on to upcoming generations. And now let's get started. Welcome back. I'm delighted that you have joined me again today. We are working through significant passages of the Bible this year in 2023, and we are currently in the New Testament in the Gospel of John chapter 7. In the previous episode, we saw Jesus' brothers taunting him to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast was one of three specified, if you want to say, holidays, sacred holidays, when the men were all required to appear before God at an appointed place for the purpose of worshiping God and consecrating themselves to Him. This was not a one-day event. It was an eight-day event. Jesus' brothers aren't urging him to attend the feast to make sure that he's obedient to God in this requirement, but rather to show up and grandstand for the people. It's as if they were saying, hey, show up and do another miracle, Jesus, or hey, perform another sign, brother. But Jesus waits and he goes up a few days later. In private. Now, when I say he goes up geographically, he actually was going south from where he was, but we're not going to get all caught up in technicalities. But if you happen to know your geography of that area of the world, then don't get hung up on when I use the word up and you're going, no, 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 they actually went down. But Jesus doesn't stay hidden for long, he goes to the temple. And he begins teaching. And just as it happens, every time Jesus turns up somewhere, there's a lot of different responses to him and to his teaching. On one hand, people are astounded by the depth of his teaching. And they marvel at this because they say he had never studied. That didn't mean he had never gone to school. He was illiterate. He had no education. What it meant was he had not continued on beyond the studies that all boys would have had to go on to be part of a rabbinical school. He had not spent years serving as a disciple, a student, a follower of another great rabbi. So what qualified him? to be this teacher, or rather, who qualified him? That's what people were asking. And the answer was simple, God. 
Early in the episode, I mentioned the phrase, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called, and why I think it can be a dangerous statement. Now, I understand the intent of this, but I think it can lead to erroneous application in no small manner, especially when our children hear this type of statement over and over again. I understand the meaning of this is to say God can use anyone with a willing heart. God can call anyone into a a service, into fulfilling their calling, as long as they have willing hearts and they have obedience. So I understand the intent of that, but I also think that we have to be careful with the inadvertent messages that we send, not only to our young people, but to others. You see, it's not just a matter that the statement says, sometimes God doesn't call the qualified. Sometimes he qualifies the called. Rather, the way that we say that, it's, it's a blanket statement. It's just a matter of God doesn't call the qualified. Really? I think if you look throughout all of Scripture, you see that God actually calls a lot of people to step into roles they're qualified for. Joseph, for example, had years of experience in leadership positions. No, they were not in ideal settings, but they were leadership roles, both as the overseer in Potiphar's house And scripture tells us he was given a leadership role even when he was unjustly imprisoned. So he had those years of experience before he stepped up to be Pharaoh's second in command. When David shows up and kills Goliath, it's not some magic. He's not standing out there facing this giant thinking, well, God, you're somehow just going to give me this this skill to pick up these stones and sling this around, and I don't even know how these stones go in here or how I swing this or when I let it go, but, but hey, God, I just know you're going you're gonna to make this possible. No, 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 no. He had developed his skill as a stone slinger. This wasn't some weird skill. Ancient armies were filled with people who were skilled at being able to sling projectiles. This wasn't the modern-day equivalent of a young boy playing with a rubber band gun. This was a warrior's skill. Esther earned the right to invite the king and Mordecai to a banquet and make a petition. So each of these people, absolutely, they relied on the power and the wisdom that only God could provide. But he had been at work qualifying them for years before they stepped into the fullness of their calling. Back to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. So the people are there listening to Jesus, and they're asking, who who qualified him? Then, no surprise here, they split over the answer. Some said, he is a good man. In, in, In other words, his teaching is sound, and this is truth, and this is something that we need to listen to. Others countered, no, 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 no. He is leading the people astray. He is telling things that are false, things that are against the scripture. 
no, this is a dangerous teacher. People split. What they were, interestingly, united on was the decision to keep their opinions to themselves because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They did not want to come down on the wrong side of the authorities. Remember, the Jewish leaders had very real power in their society. Now, recently, I read the memoir of a well-known Christian teacher, and she writes of the mocking that she received because she didn't have a seminary degree. Never mind how many lives have been transformed by her biblical teaching over a period of years, decades. You know, I wonder if those who have participated in belittling her have ever read this passage in John chapter 7. Because in modern day lingo, what we would say is Jesus had no seminary degree. He hadn't even gone to seminary, much less graduated from seminary. Perhaps you've been called to a mission. You have a stirring in your soul. There is something that you have a passion for. You have a talent for. There is something within you, and you feel like, I think this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And it might be something that will radically alter your life, and it may just be, I don't mean just in a small way, but in the sense that it might not upend your entire life, but it might be a ministry that you begin that doesn't receive a lot of notoriety or a lot of fanfare, and it doesn't have to upend your life. But maybe you feel like, I don't know, because I don't have the, quote, right credentials. Hey, guess what? You are in good company. What we want to avoid here are there the traps that are awaiting us on both sides of this issue. You see, we can have pride because of our qualifications and our, quote, credentials. We can also have pride because of their absence. The focus is on faithfulness, not finding and adhering to a one-size-fits-all formula. As Jesus goes on with his teaching, he makes a sobering statement. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Ouch! Do you get the significance of that? The state of our heart determines our ability to recognize truth. This places the responsibility for discerning truth on my shoulders, not on someone else's to convince me of what is true. Early in this podcast, I did a four-part series on the core compass of truth. And in this, I detail the four ways God reveals truth. Common sense, a universal grace given to all people. Creation, the created world. Other people and scripture. And out of those four, the Bible or the scriptures are the North Star which is immovable. Anything from the other four points of the compass, common sense, creation, other people, which contradict the Bible are in error, not scripture. 
And so Jesus makes clear we've been given the ability to recognize truth. Whether we do or not is a reflection of the state and condition of our heart. I don't want to imply by any means that this makes discerning what is true in every single aspect and situation of life easy, and that if we don't automatically just know something and what we're supposed to do in a situation, that it's um, because our heart is, is sinful or wrong or not pure and not seeking God. I don't, I don't mean that everything has to be taken within context. It takes work and may well take time. After all, by the time Jesus is making these statements to the, the crowd, he's been teaching and working miracles for quite some time. He's not new on the scene. This isn't his first lesson. It's not his first time teaching. They have been able to hear him teach. They have seen his character. They have seen the miracles. Enough time, enough experience has gone by that they can reasonably be expected to be making a determination about whether they will believe he is the Messiah, the Son of God, or they won't. You know, the more time that we spend in a relationship, whether it's with God or even another person, the greater our responsibility for what we choose to believe about the other party. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay entitled God in the Dock. Now, this isn't a boat dock. He's not talking about God being on, at a marina or something. What he's referring to when he says God in the dock is the dock was being a witness stand in a courtroom. And he wrote about the change in people's thinking that placed themselves in the dock to placing God there. You see, there was a time when the dominant cultural mindset, whether you were a Christian or not, upheld a belief that you as a person owed something to God. You were the one in the dock. You were the one on the witness stand. You were the one who had to give an account to God. Well, Lewis wrote of how that thinking had been turned entirely upside down where the prevailing belief became, God's in the dock, God has to answer to me. God owes me an explanation. He owes it to me to make truth so crystal clear that I can't ever remain in error. Well, this passage in John chapter 7 contradicts that. It affirms we're the one in the dock, not God. Jesus clearly says it is the condition of our heart when we have been exposed to truth, when we have borne witness to truth, that it is the condition of our heart that makes us able to recognize the authority, the rightness of his teaching or not. The greatest power any and every human being possesses is that of choice. It's agency. It's free will. It is the ability to choose what we will believe, what we will think, and what we will do with that. I understand there are things that go wrong in people's minds, either because of disease or injury, 
whether that is mental and emotional or physical. However, and God is just, and God is a God of grace, and I believe that he upholds all human dignity. As a principle, the ultimate freedom brings with it the ultimate responsibility. We can be enslaved in any other aspect of life, but no one can ever truly enslave our mind against our will. Well, the people then were faced with the same choice that we have to make today. What will we believe about Jesus? Was he the Christ, the Son of God, or not? And everything else that we believe about life rests on how we answer that particular question. This is where theology makes such an amazing difference. Some people conclude he's not the Son of God, he is not the Christ, the Savior of the world, because they have a wrong theology. In this chapter 7, it is, this is something else that's very sobering. Some of the people said, we know where Jesus comes from, but no one will know where the Christ comes from. So for the people who were thinking this, what they were saying was, okay, we have this belief in place. And this belief was that when the Christ, the Messiah shows up, no one's going to know his origin story. Nobody's going to know where he came from. But we know where Jesus came from. So therefore, he cannot be the Christ. Well, the reality is the Bible never said that. Old Testament prophecies had actually declared the Messiah would come from the town of Bethlehem. But the people who held on to this wrong theology cared more about adhering to their entrenched beliefs than knowing the truth. There were other Old Testament prophecies that talked about uh, coming from Nazareth, the, uh, the Nazarene. They also talked about that he would be called out of Egypt. You know what? It would not have been hard to just ask some questions to find out if Jesus had ever spent any time living in Egypt, which he had as a child, or did where did he grow up? Where was his hometown? Where was his birthplace? All of those things would have been exceptionally easy to find out if people had actually been willing to question their theology. In fairly recent years, we've passed around cliches in our Christian circles which has made good intentions and sincerity take precedence over good theology. This can absolutely lead people away from Christ. Our theology matters. Our beliefs matter. Not just about the, quote, big things, but even things like this this one idea that people had. Knowing the scriptures matter. You see, nothing in the Bible had ever declared when the Messiah comes, his origin story is going to be a complete mystery. Nothing said that. Yet somehow this idea had been passed down and had been repeated enough that people gave it the equivalent of scriptural validity, even though it wasn't there. We have all kinds of ideas and beliefs that that just become so entrenched in our thinking, and and they just become part of our theology, and yet there's nothing in Scripture that actually supports that. That one wrong belief 
kept people from believing in Jesus. You know, one of the statements that I've heard throughout my life is that when Jesus was dying on the cross, that when he called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That this was a statement that he was making because God had to turn his back on him because God couldn't look upon sin. I have no idea where in the scripture that comes from. I have read through the Bible many times. I have sought for that. It isn't there. What I do see is evidence that from the beginning to the end, God's pretty well aware of the sin that's actually going on on this planet. He calls people to account for it. Actually, in some pretty excruciating detail in different places, especially on the Old Testament, where God looks down and says, hey, I want you to know I'm very well aware of what's going on down there. Just in case you aren't sure that I am, let me explain it to you in vivid, specific detail. I think that Jesus' cry from the cross is much more consistent with his both being fully God and fully man. And that when God was silent, which is very different from turning his back, when God remained silent, it left Jesus feeling, not the same as believing, but feeling that God was absent, that, that, that where was God? Have we not cried, cried out with that at times in our lives where we don't feel the presence of God? He's not speaking to us the way that we so desperately want him to. And then when Jesus goes on and he makes this statement, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, was it a matter that God had to turn his back for a certain period of time? And, and then by the time Jesus made that statement, whoop, time was up and he'd been able to turn back around. No, I don't think so at all. I think God was totally there and totally present the entire time. He just remained silent as he often does as a way to test our faith. And so when Jesus goes on and he makes that statement of father into your hands, I commit my spirit. That is a profound statement of faith because there's no evidence that God had answered him prior to that. But after that, God sure shows up and makes his presence seen and heard and felt. We have a responsibility to examine our theology and not just assume that because something's been passed down to us or we've heard it time and time again, that therefore it's true. What can we take away from this passage in chapter 7 of John's Gospel? Well, there's a lot more than these four items that I'm going to mention, but we're going to limit our discussion to these. Number one, we need to avoid the pride of having or not having the quote, right qualifications to step into our callings. Our priority is faithfulness, not formulas. Number two, the state of our heart determines our ability to recognize truth. I am responsible for seeking and discerning truth. It's not someone else's job, including God's, to convince me of what is true. You know, the overarching message in the book of Proverbs is basically this. Seek wisdom, pursue truth, and you will find her. Number three, truth will divide. If everybody always agrees with you, that ought to be a red flag. I heard John Acuff say recently, 
leaders who can't be questioned end up doing questionable things. It's true. If you are a seeker and applier of truth, don't expect total unity. Sometimes you'll discover you're in the wrong. I sure know that happens to me. And sometimes it will be someone else. What we do clearly see in Jesus' life and ministry is division followed him, not because he sought to be divisive. He desires to draw all people to himself, but he knows that everyone won't align with truth. And number four, good intentions don't make up for bad theology. All it takes to turn someone away from believing in Jesus as the only Son of God and Savior of the world is one wrong theological idea. We have a responsibility to check whether our beliefs, no matter how firmly held by us, our friends, our family, our denomination, our church, our school, or whoever, really align with God's Word. All right, my friend. I know that we are not flying through this gospel, but there's so much that John packs into his writing. He has a a very interesting type of writing style, and he just is able to put so much into a, a chapter. And so rather than trying to just check off chapters, I'd rather that we really dig in and we get some principles that we can really live and apply in our own life. Hey, if you haven't already, or maybe you've been to the website before, but it's been a while since you've been there, well, hop on over to stephaniepresents.com. While you're there, I want you to do two things. One is I want you to make sure if you're not already a subscriber to the high impact newsletter that you sign up for that. And number two, I want you to look at the speaking engagements. Yes, I do speaking engagements and there's information there on the website. Maybe you're an event planner for a Christian church. Maybe you are affiliated with a Christian school. And so, or maybe you're not an event planner, but you have a friend or you you have someone in your church or your school that is. Check out the speaking engagements. And then there's a contact form on there. My email is on there. And you can reach out to me and you can say, hey, I'd like to either invite you um, to come and speak. I'd like to get some more information or, hey, Here's somebody that I would like to refer you, you to that you might want to, uh, to check out. Okay, my friend, I want you to remember this. You have an impact that is immeasurable, eternal, and irreplaceable. And because of that, I want you to commit to think deeply, live intentionally, and engage fully in God's grand story. See you next time. Thank you for listening. For information on speaking engagements and other resources, visit the website at stephaniepresents.com. Remember, learn yourself, love God, and live connected.